The text for today will be out of Acts 11, 19 through 30. Acts 11, 19 through 30. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can grab one out of the seat rack. I think it's on page 536. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over, the world, over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Matt. Well, there are some uh, passages in Acts that, uh, that everybody should be familiar with. Uh, you think about Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Um, but you shall receive power uh, when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you shall be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and Galilee and to the, the ends of the world. Uh, we should all be familiar with Acts 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Uh, we should all be familiar with um, Acts 2, 42 through 47. When someone says, what is the church supposed to be like? Um, we see that very clearly defined in Acts 2, 42 through 47, that the believers were together. They had everything in common. They were praying together. They were proclaiming the gospel together. They were sharing as each one had need. They met weekly in the temple and they gathered daily, breaking bread in their homes and having glad and generous hearts. We see these sort of anchor passages in Acts, the Ephesian revival in Acts 17, Paul in Athens, uh, the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, uh, the Gentile inclusion, often called the Gentile Pentecost in Acts chapter 11 as well. In all these places, we should be familiar with some of these anchor passages within the book of Acts. And let me add to that list, you should be familiar with the church at Antioch. It is a missional model church. It is a model church that we should be very familiar with. We read about it in several places. In Acts chapter 6, there's a convert uh, that becomes a deacon in that Acts chapter 6 passage. He's a convert from Antioch. Uh, in Acts chapter 11 that we're reading here, we read about the church at Antioch. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas uh, are sent from this church at Antioch. It's a home base for uh, Paul and Barnabas in their three missionary journeys. You should know about the church at Antioch. And so this morning, I want us to pay careful attention uh, with this, uh, to this place and to this church. As a matter of fact, I, I googled this week, uh, there are over 20 churches in the Philadelphia metro called Antioch. 
Uh, in the same way that parents still name their kids Mary and Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and those kind of names, churches still name their churches Antioch because of the impact of this one church. Let's get back into the text, and I want you to see a few things about the church in Antioch. Acts chapter 11. In verse 19, we read that starting with uh, Stephen, he refers back to Stephen and his persecution. Uh, Stephen was persecuted, and we read about that in, in chapter 7 and 8, his arrest, his trial, his stoning. Uh, Stephen's martyrdom had an incredible, an incredible effect. As a result of that, this church in Antioch has its roots in uh, the, the, the results of what happened through Stephen. And I'll share a little bit more about that um, at, toward the end of the service here. Uh, in verse 20, during that dispersion, some of them who were scattered as a result of Stephen's stoning, it says men of Cyprus and Cyrene, uh, Cyprus uh, w- was a large island just about 100 miles off the coast, and uh, Cyrene was uh, North Africa, um, far uh, away from Alexandria, but along that same coastline um, into uh, North Africa. Um, and so these believers, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, when they came to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists also. The Hellenists uh, were Gentiles. Uh, they were um, Greek or Roman. Uh, they would have not been Jewish. Uh, some were speaking only to Jews, but these were speaking to Hellenists also. And they were preaching the Lord Jesus. So the message didn't change. They were still sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, both to Jews, uh, but also to believers, or to, uh, to non-Jews, to Gentiles, uh, proclaiming in Jesus Christ the forgiveness of sins, peace with God, um, forgiveness and uh, um, heaven, all the things that come with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, they were preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. The hand of the Lord was with them, verse 21, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And then this report comes to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. At some point, this shouldn't surprise us that these international believers from Cyrene and from Cyprus, um, Barnabas himself is from Cyprus, uh, his name is Joseph. We learn that in, in Acts chapter uh, 3, I believe, that Barnabas, a son of encouragement, sold a field. His name, nickname was Barnabas, but his name was Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. Um, these international believers would go to this international city and proclaim the gospel. What's significant about Antioch? Uh, Antioch began... Uh, some of you will know this from your history, that when Alexander the Great came through uh, in 300 B.C. Um, and, and um, his kingdom uh, spread all over the Middle East at that point, and then his kingdom was divided. Daniel prophesied that. He said that the, out of this one horn would come four horns, and so you have the, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Those names might pop for some of you. But Antiochus, uh, Seleucus Antiochus began the city of Antioch uh, in about 350 years before Christ. Uh, it was a, a large city, and when the Romans came through a few centuries later, uh, and Romanized it, they began to pay um, settlements, colonies from different nations to come and populate that city. Uh, 
It was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, a population of about 500,000 people, and it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria, a huge city, an international cross route, uh, crossroads with trade routes going north and south and, uh, and east. Uh, it was a very important city. We know from Josephus and others, uh, the Jewish historian, that Greeks and Romans and Syrians, Phoenicians, Jews, Arabs, Egyptians, Africans, Indians, and Asians all populated Antioch, making it a remarkably diverse city, not just in people and languages, but in culture and worship and deities and temples and idolatrous things. It included temples to Zeus, Apollos, Poseidon, Adonis, and Tyche. According to John Stott, all of this made Antioch the right place for a church. He says no more appropriate place could be imagined, either as the venue for the first international church or as the springboard for the worldwide Christian mission. Now you have to understand the shift here. Up until now, if you've been following along in, in Acts, it, it was a Jerusalem-centered church. The first eight chapters are all around the temple complex, limited to a very small area within Jerusalem. But then in Acts 8, it spreads and we have a, an Ethiopian eunuch who gets saved. And then we have uh, believers going out to Samaria and preaching the gospel. And you get Simon the magician and other people like that. And then in 11 and 10, you have um, Peter going out uh, and, and healing Enos and then raising Dorcas from, from the dead, staying at Simon the Tanner's house and then branching northward toward Cornelius. But in all these ways, the church is still limited, but expanding but all of a sudden, you have a complete shift. The church's geographic center was shifting from Jerusalem to Antioch, and it would remain in Antioch for the next 30 years. One thing we should note at this point, though, is that the church has no official headquarters. It's not Rome. It's not Jerusalem. It's not Antioch. It's not Dallas. Right? We talk about all these centers in America that say that they're the buckle of the Bible belt or all those things. The church's headquarters is in heaven itself where Jesus Christ is the head and He is reigning and ruling over the church international. His movement is centered there in His presence and every little church like this, we just become an outpost. We become an embassy a place where believers, official representatives of heaven, uh, citizens of another nation whose allegiance is not to our nation here, but as believers, our allegiance is to Jesus Christ alone as the head of the church. And our, we are citizens of another country. And so we gather here into this embassy or this outpost and we're, we gather for strength and encouragement and, and uh, teaching and, and for healing at some place, but then we're scattered again into the world as light and salt uh, to, to go into our neighborhoods and our workplaces. And then we gather again next week for the same thing. And, and this continues onward knowing that this, this is not our home uh, and this church is not our headquarters. If, if we were to, to uh, plant other churches in the life of this congregation, then then it is not, we're not to get too comfortable here. The church is gathered and scattered in different locations all around the globe. And we are a part of the church universal with a local expression. 
We see this church in Antioch, though, not the mother church in Jerusalem. Tony Marita points out that the Jerusalem church is wonderful. It should be appreciated for its uniqueness and power, but it had challenges when it came to evangelizing non-Jews, a la Acts 6. The Hellenistic widows were being overlooked. The Jewish widows were being favored. And so it had a difficulty with reaching out to Gentiles. I mean, they gave Peter all kinds of static in Acts 11. You went into the home of a Gentile? And so Antioch becomes the place where the Lord expands the ministry into the Gentile world. It's different than it was up until this point. We read about these unnamed evangelists. Look again at verse 19. It just says, those who were scattered. Those who were scattered. They're just unnamed evangelists. And in many ways, this is how the church operates. We tend to gravitate toward big personalities and toward very famous people who, uh, someone like a Billy Graham who preaches the gospel to a huge crowds, 50,000, 60,000, 100,000 people in an arena. But it's really the no-name everyday people who are daily, day in, day out, proclaiming the gospel. You think of a, a guy... Uh, who was nervous to share the gospel with someone like D.L. Moody, uh, who uh, went into the shoe shop where he was a salesperson and, and was trembling, uh, wanting to share the gospel, and finally found his opportunity, shared the gospel with him. Uh, you think of these unnamed people who, who uh, don't have a lot of following and we'll never read about. This makes up the majority of us. 150 years from now, very few of us will be in a textbook or uh, in a video, maybe at that time, or something like that, that, that will proclaim how, uh, the great things that we've done. But the gospel is proclaimed and ministry is done through unnamed people who are not doing it for their own glory. Right? Paul said that some preach the gospel out of rivalry and envy for their own name, out of selfish ambition. But for the majority of us, the gospel goes out secretly and quietly in an unnamed way through unnamed evangelists like this that started a church uh, with incredible impact. <clears throat> These evangelists, Tim Keller calls them mavericks because they begin to share the gospel with non-Jews. F.F. Bruce and John Stott refer to them as daring spirits. They're doing something new. And this is often the case with evangelists. They often risk a lot and try new things to share the gospel with those who need to hear it. They're often so um, much on fire with the message of the gospel that they try new ways and inventive ways of sharing the gospel and breaking out of boundaries. Consider the ministries of John Wesley and George Whitfield. In the 1700s, uh, they, they were criticized and kicked out of the pulpits in England because they preached using vulgar language. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that they were cursing. It just means vulgar language in those days meant that they, they preached in the everyday vernacular. They spoke in such a way that, the, that every man, the blue-collar workers, could understand. They didn't use big theological words. They just spoke the gospel plainly and clearly. And because of that, they were kicked out of pulpits. They were not allowed to preach in churches. So what did they do? They went and preached in fields and in the open air. And in the fields and in the open air, because of the way in which they were trying to be, uh, reach, uh, and preach the gospel and reach the lost, um, thousands and thousands and thousands of people gathered. 
uh, to hear them. Crowds of as many as 30,000 people went to hear Whitfield and Wesley preach in those fields. And we don't have to go back 300 years for examples of evangelists pushing the boundaries of how they share the gospel. We can consider Billy Graham, who filled football stadiums uh, and enormous tents and places where thousands of people gathered for weeks and weeks and weeks on end to hear the gospel. We don't even have to go back to Billy Graham. Um, we can go back to great evangelists who are even now today innovative and bold when they push the boundaries about sharing the gospel. But it all starts with somebody who, like Jeremiah, the gospel is like a fire within their bones and, and woe to them if they don't share the gospel. There is a sense in which once you've experienced the grace of God and salvation in Jesus' name, that at some point, like 2 Kings 9, those lepers who hoarded all the um, treasures from the tents, you know, as they went, at some point they said, hey, daybreak is coming, and, and, and when we're found out, what we're doing is not right. We shouldn't be hoarding all this food and treasure for ourselves. Woe to us if we don't share the good news of what God has done. For the believer, for believers within this room, um, some of you, it's not been too long since you remember what it was like to walk in darkness. Some of you, it's not been too long that you remember what it was like to have no peace with God. To be um, riddled with a, a, a conscience that is destroyed by sin and regret and bad choices. For some of you, it's not been too long since you remembered uh, confusion and always grasping for something that you thought would bring you meaning and purpose and hope and some philosophy or some, um, some Eastern practice or some other religion or spiritual practice or some physical thing or maybe a career. It's, it's not been too long for many of you that you realized how many times you came up empty in your search for meaning and significance and then you found it in Jesus Christ and He satisfied your soul. And so for many of you, you can't not share the gospel. Um, it's difficult for you not to talk about Jesus. And this is the way it was for these unnamed evangelists. When the church in Jerusalem heard what was taking place, verse 25, um, I'm sorry, verse, 20, um, verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And Barnabas comes to check it out. And in verse 25, when Barnabas um, heard what was taking place, um, he saw the grace of God. And uh, in verse 23, he saw the grace of God and he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church there, and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. You remember Saul. Uh, Saul is the same guy as Paul. And so I know there are a number of new believers in the room and, and people who are new to church. And so for some of us, this, uh, this is confusing in the beginning days. I, as a new believer myself, I would often get confused between Saul and Paul. And why was he called Saul sometimes and Paul at other times? But, but this is the same Saul who approved of the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 8. And then some of your Bible titles, headings would have said, Saul ravages the church. He's the same one who went on a rampage, torturing Christians, uh, uh, 
taking them bound, bringing them to the chief priests, and, uh, and having them interrogated uh, and oftentimes imprisoned. This same Saul who persecuted the church had a conversion experience when he saw the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. Uh, he was in Damascus for around three years and Arabia, and then he goes back to uh, Jerusalem to try to join the disciples in, in chapter 9, verse 23. Uh, and then we have this gap in Saul's life. But we learn from Galatians that he says he spent about 14 years um, in his hometown in, uh, in Tarsus. And so that's what Barnabas is referring to. So after about a 15-year time from Acts chapter 9, Barnabas remembers Saul in Tarsus, and he goes to get him, and he brings him back so that the two of them can work together in building disciples in Antioch. We see in verses 27 through 30 uh, that Agabus and prophets come down and they prophesy that there's a great famine over the world, which actually took place in the days of Claudius. And so this was a generous church. They sent relief through the hands of Barnabas and Saul. What we see here in the church of Antioch is a model of a missional church. If we were to grow up to be a big boy church, right, here at Ridgeline, we would want to be like the church at Antioch. The church at Antioch became the major foundational church that would single-handedly reach the Roman Empire in 30 years. It is a model church. It has a few distinctives that I think that we can learn from. And I want you to see this in light of the way we view a good church today. Let me just start with that. There's no indication of size at the church of Antioch. But we often say a good church is a big church. There's no indication, no statistics for the, their budget. We have no indication whatsoever of what size building they had, if they even had a building. No square footage. They had no family life center. They had no gym. We don't read anything about their children's ministry or their thriving youth ministry. We don't know if they had a kitchen or an education space or um, a, a beautiful property. There is no indication of anything that we see as a metric for church. Sometimes we don't even consider a church good unless it possesses these metrics that the church growth movement tells us is important for a good church to have. You know that? If, if there's not enough parking spaces, if there's not enough seats, if there's not enough uh, air conditioning and heat and light and singers and musicians and, and inspirational messages and, and a great website, the church at Antioch had none of those things. We don't consider a church good unless it possesses some of those metrics. So what was so amazing about Antioch that we should strive for if none of those things that we consider makes a good church a good church? What are some of the things that we can see? What features can we see in the way they operated? What made the church at Antioch the most fruitful church, arguably, in the history of Christianity, considering the impact of Paul and Barnabas's three missionary journeys that were based out of Antioch. We see that it was an evangelistic church. That was right at the beginning in verse 19. They could not stop sharing the gospel. Listen, if we're going to be a fruitful church, churches die 
when the majority of their ministry, mission, and budget stays within the congregation. I have a book on my shelf that I refer to often. Uh, it's called a... Um, what do you call that? When... Uh, yeah, that one. Autopsy. That's the word you're, yeah, that I couldn't find. An autopsy of a deceased church. An autopsy is when a, a person dies and you, you um, investigate the causes of death within their body. An autopsy of a, of a deceased church, one of the statistics of every dying church is that ministry turned inward. It means that we start to care more about the songs that we sing or don't sing, or the way a person was dressed or not dressed, or the, the way a room looks, and we stop worrying that there are 75,000 people within 15 minutes of this building that don't go to church anywhere. It, it happens, the church turns inward when we're more grieved about uh, what we serve in a luncheon or a breakfast or, or, or how our Sunday morning service goes or, or what our staff looks like or what our property looks like, but we have no concern whatsoever with the people who are lost and dying. This church will die, and rightfully so, if we lose sight of the mission to make disciples. Jesus said, go and make disciples teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. If we are not effective evangelistically, if your heart doesn't burn for the lost, Jesus said in Luke that my, um, that my mission was to seek and to save the lost. If we're not passionately trying to reach the lost, not through programs at church, I mean you. Ephesians 4 says that God gave the church uh, apostles and prophets, evangelists, teachers, and pastors to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. So it's your mission to reach the lost. And if you're not effectively crying out on behalf of your lost neighbor and family member and sharing the gospel, then our time here might be short. We might be a statistical congregation if we're not effective evangelistically. We also see this feature in the church at Antioch, that it was an international church. And I love this fact because we see that um, in this passage, verses 19 through 21, we see that the church at Antioch looked a little bit like heaven with all the different nations, tribes, and tongues represented. I love the fact that this church ridgeline represents a multi-ethnic congregation that this is a place where we can hear the gospel and the word read in our small groups in different dialects and different languages from different backgrounds and cultures. If I could, I would urge every single one of you to go on an international mission trip to see the way in which God is actively working and congregations are being built around the world and to break out of um, the culture that you're used to to see the way churches worship all around the world. I'm so grateful that uh, mentors of mine, when I first became a believer, urged me to get involved in international missions. I'm grateful to be able to say that on five different continents, I've worshiped with believers in different locations. Outdoors in Uganda, in Bolivia, in small rooms, in Irapuato, in Guanajuato, Mexico, in Lyon, in small rooms, in little... Um, uh, these sort of houses that are built with a courtyard and all the families and people would gather in the courtyard in these house church types of environments in Newfoundland, in Rome, in Israel, all over the Lord has allowed me to go. It's been my joy to connect with believers and to experience the grace of God 
You should go on a mission trip. You should take Nadia up on her offer to go and experience the church in Ukraine. The church at Antioch was an international church. We also see that it was a disciple-making church. It's an evangelistic church, an international church, a disciple-making church. Barnabas, when he learned about what was taking place, what did he do? He went and got Saul, and together they taught, and they grabbed all those new converts, and they began to teach them steadfastly for over a year about the gospel and about the word, and they they began to invest their lives. A fruitful church is a disciple-making church. Do you know Ridgeline was started as a disciple-making church 10 years ago? I started a church in Oklahoma City, and, and I'd been a part of six other or five other church plants uh, in the past. And for every one of those churches that I was a part of, those church planting churches, um, the plan was, let's gather a crowd, um, and, and, and maybe we'll use... Um, um, you know, our Sunday morning service as sort of a fishing place for seekers. And so we'll send out 25,000 mailers to a region and we'll hit it five or 10 times uh, with these mailers. And then we'll invite everybody to, to a big service. And then for all those who come to a service from that, we'll begin to build the church by sharing the gospel and gathering those who are interested. But beginning with a service that appealed to the masses was the way in which a lot of church plants begin. For some reason, uh, the Lord had put it on my heart to start in a different way, to start as a disciple-making church, to see if we could get our core team trained for a year in disciple-making material and a disciple-making philosophy, and to encourage them that Paul did in 2 Timothy 2.2, that the things you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust a reliable men who will be able to teach others also. That's four deep, four generations. So with our core team, with Dave Watson and Charles Gregoire and Jack Hetherington and all these other folks that first gathered together at the Watson's basement, we, we trained in disciple-making. And we wanted to see, can we start a church that de-emphasizes the Sunday morning gathering and emphasizes how can I reach people with the gospel and root them in disciple-making ministry? So for the first five years, we were a church that sought to make disciples who could make disciples who could make disciples because where you have disciples being made, a church is always the result. When you have evangelism and discipleship going together, a church will always be the result because children of the king want to gather with children of the king. So it was a different philosophy, and we, we had some bumps and bruises along the way. But we see here at the church at Antioch is a disciple-making church, and we're still a disciple-making church. Uh, we encourage everybody at our congregation to be involved in disciple-making. We also see that this church was a generous church. In light of the prophetic word from Agabus and the impending famine, they gathered their money and they sent it on to support the church. We see that it was a church with a plurality of elders. Flip over to Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. In Acts chapter 13, the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So we see this plurality of elders, uh, also multi-ethnic group of people leading the church. But we also see in Acts 13 that they were a spiritually seeking, fasting, praying, worshiping church. Look at verse 2 of Acts chapter 13. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. 
It is a spiritually seeking, fasting, praying, worshiping church that raises up leaders and sends them out. It's a sending church as well. You see there, no mention of their building. No mention of the size of their youth group or their staff or their budget or their property. The same metrics that we use to evaluate a church had nothing to do with the way they evaluated an impactful church. Let me make two points in closing. Two points in closing here. One, God redeems pain and evil and He uses it for His glory. Our passage started with the persecution and stoning of Stephen. It was a horrible thing. I don't think any one of us could sit and watch someone being stoned to death. A gruesome, horrible death. The church uh, experienced this. uh, It said men and women lamented and grieved over Stephen's death. It's a horrible experience. Everyone in the Jerusalem church grieved over what happened to Stephen. It seemed like the enemies of God were winning. Have you ever felt that way? That it just seems like in one season you can take loss after loss after loss, setback after setback, whether it's health or relationship or difficulty in your personal life or in your spiritual life. This seemed like a setback. The stoning of Stephen emboldened the enemies of the gospel. Persecution picked up steam. Saul began ravaging the church. It would be very easy for them to feel defeated in this time. But we see here that God redeems our pain and our difficulties. Job said, though he slay me, yet shall I praise him. Romans 8 says that he works all things for good. James 1 says to count it pure joy whenever you face trials of any kind. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were faced with the fiery furnace, said, my God is able to deliver me from this difficulty. But even if He doesn't, we won't bow down. But consider this. Out of the horrible, evil, painful, difficult season that came right after Stephen's death, listen to what happened. The Gospel was proclaimed, both to Jews and Gentiles. Philip went out and preached the gospel in Samaria and to the Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopia still has a vibrant church today that traces its history back to that encounter as a direct result of Stephen's stoning. The believers were scattered. They preached the gospel in Samaria. They sent Peter to check on all those churches that were started. Peter raises Dorcas from the dead and heals Enos. Uh, ministers with Simon the Tanner and goes and preaches the gospel to Cornelius where an entire household is saved, revolutionizing the future of the church through the Gentile um, Pentecost and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And then we read here at the beginning of Acts chapter 11, verse 19, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and they planted the most impactful church of the first century. It reached the entire Roman Empire in 30 years. And who did it reach it through? The guy that held the coats through the stoning of Stephen and proving of their death. Do you understand how God can redeem your pain? Sometimes we ask, why, Lord? Why did you have me go through this? 
Why am I so... Why is everything so difficult and dark and hard and painful? Not understanding that God can change painful, difficult trials into a steadfast spirit, an endurance, a character refining, as silver sort of is refined through heat and scraping. God is refining you through difficulty. You know, if your life was easy, you probably wouldn't care much for Jesus. You probably wouldn't see much need for daily prayer. If everything in your life was going well, you probably wouldn't look much like Jesus. It's only in the crucible that our character is refined and shaped. And God grows His church through terrible things. I can't imagine what the church of Ukraine will look like 20 years from now as a result of this. Nadia gave testimony to the fact that unbelievers pouring into the church, giving their lives to Christ, raising up people who were once separated from God, now being brought near in Christ. That's number one. God redeems pain and evil and uses it for His glory. The second thing I want you to see as a result of this passage is Barnabas' example in Acts 11.23. This is when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. It's a verse you should write down on a card, underline it if you do that in your Bible, memorize it if you can. Barnabas' example is, is something that you should emulate every single week that we're together. What did he do? He went and he saw the grace of God. How do you see the grace of God? What did he see? Did he see a glow or there was like a halo? Or How did he see the grace of God in their lives? You see the grace of God when you look someone in the eyes and their, 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 their eyes are filled with tears about how lost and broken their life was before they met Jesus. I remember hearing a brother share his testimony in Cuba. And he couldn't stop weeping about the grace of God that was poured out in his life. He talked about uh, a life of satanic worship, uh, demon possession, idolatry, immorality. And, and when he said, but, but Jesus looked down on me, you could see the grace of God in his face. One of the ways you see the grace of God when you come in here just ask another person, hey, I've never heard your story. Tell me, how did you become a believer? What was your life like before you met Christ? It's one of the most encouraging questions you can ask somebody. And if you've never heard somebody else's testimony within this congregation, just ask them, can I take you to breakfast? Can I buy you lunch? Can we go get coffee? I'd love to hear the grace of God in your life. Barnabas went and he saw the grace of God and the story after story after story of these Gentile converts who were once far away, but brought near by the blood of Christ. It says also, not only did he see the grace of God, but he was glad. I don't want us to skim past that. Phillips translates that as he was delighted. Don't rush over that. He could have had a different reaction. He could have experienced some selfishness and jealousy. Well, I didn't have anything to do with your conversion. God didn't use me to build this church. And, and so because it, I didn't have anything to do with it, maybe he had a sense of jealousy. Have you ever felt that way? Man, we had a guy in, uh, 
in college that always landed on his feet. I mean, he could screw up left and right and do everything wrong. And it was almost like God always rescued this guy and made him, he, he won all the time. And we had kind of a nickname for him that I can't mention here. Um, but it, it had to do with the fact that this guy always wins. I mean, no matter what, the grace of God is apparent and evident in his life. When something goes wrong, he always gets out of it. When something bad happens, he always gets blessed as a result of it. And we weren't glad for him. <laughs> we were angry. Uh, we, had a, we had a bad name for him. Um, but throughout his life, I've continued to see the grace of God evident in his life. And I have had to confess that at times it's made me angry or jealous or somewhat bitter or frustrated. Do you ever feel that way when you see God heaping blessing on somebody else that you feel a little bit jealous. Why doesn't that happen to me? Why don't I get my prayers answered like that? Why doesn't God give me a good story like this? Or why, why doesn't that happen to me? We're not always delighted when we see the grace of God in someone's life. Barnabas was glad. The third thing he did was upon seeing the grace of God in their life, Rejoicing and being delighted in the grace of God, he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And just chew on those words this week. Meditate on this passage. He exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And that's the goal, right? That you and I would be steadfast and faithful. See, it's not how you start in the Christian life, it's how you finish. It doesn't matter how quick you jump out of the gates. Christianity is not a sprint. It's not even a marathon. It's like an ultra marathon. Have you ever seen those ultra marathon runners? Um, I follow a person on social media who has run a 32-mile ultra marathon every day for the last 148 days. Makes my body hurt just thinking about that. Christianity is a lot like that. Blisters, pain, setbacks, difficulty. This person will show a video of snakes crossing the path and um, animals in the wilderness. Christianity is a lot like that. James says to count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds so that your steadfastness can produce endurance and encouragement and, and, and change, that God can change you. Listen, Continue to walk at a pace that is sustainable because it's not as important how you start the Christian life. It's important how you finish. Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And there is laid up ahead of me a crown for those who finish. The seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, what does it say? To the one who overcomes, I will give. To the one who overcomes, to the one... Seven times, the gifts are for those who finish well. Will you make that your ambition? Let me exhort you to finish well. Though leaders fall, though churches close through difficulties in your relationships and in your health and in your career, let me exhort you to remain faithful with steadfast purpose. Father, thank you for our time together today. Thank you for this text Thank you for this word. We pray that we would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. May we consider him who experienced such opposition from sinful men, and may we experience the steadfastness that you provide through your Holy Spirit. Let us wake up every day where your mercies are new every morning and say, though I fell yesterday, help me to walk with you and to remain in you and to abide in you today. Lord Jesus, would you give us endurance as we walk with you? And may you grant that this church would resemble the church at Antioch. In Jesus' name, amen.